quite shady. <laughs> From the Advocate magazine in partnership with Glad, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and that laugh that you just heard is peppermint. Since appearing on RuPaul's Drag Race three years ago and making it all the way to the finale, I might add, where she was the runner-up, Peppermint has built a truly impressive career. On top of her drag and touring, she's acted on multiple TV shows, originated a role on Broadway, and this month she's releasing a brand new EP. It is one of a series of three. This one, the first, is called A Girl Like Me, Letters to My Lovers. On the podcast today, we talk about all that, about what is being done about this ongoing issue of racism and the drag fandom, and how coming out as trans changed her drag. Peppermint says that her drag is a lot less serious now. It's more fun, more campy, and you know what? She describes it a lot better than I do, so let's cut right to it. Without further ado, here's Peppermint. I wonder if we can start by talking about how you view your drag. Because just like to oversimplify it, the majority of queens are men who dress up for a show and they perform femininity. Can you talk about how you think about your drag since as a trans woman, your, you know, femininity isn't something you're taking on and off? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that my femininity is something that does, that I still have to consider. I view it as my femininity is something that I'm constantly trying to keep on. But yeah, I think my drag, initially, my drag was sort of the space that I felt most comfortable in, like just like being in this sort of female embodiment, whatever that means. Now I just kind of view it as like me glammed up versus me not glammed up. <laughs> it's still drag, you know, but that's how I view it. <laughs> so for you, did your relationship to drag change after you realized and came out as trans? Yeah, it actually got a lot less serious. I think before, before coming out as trans, I was it was just really crucial because it was the only thing I had to hold on to. But then after being able to kind of, you know, figure out how I wanted, have more control over how I was perceived and, and what I was putting forth, then I was a lot more chill about my approach to drag. You know, I would wear purple hair. Like, I don't really care what happens to me in drag because... My womanhood is not is no longer at stake. Oh, so when you're saying less serious, you're saying campiness. I would avoid campiness at all costs. I wanted to be as quote convincing as a woman while in drag as I could, because I, I took it so seriously. I was like, no, I am a woman. I want people to see me as a woman, and that's it. I mean, those things are still true, but I don't really care. It's a it's a joke. <laughs> I mean, it's not just a joke, but like I take, I'm, I'm a lot more playful with it and I can be more campy. I no longer view my drag as like, you know, the only way that I can communicate my womanhood. Well, you know, you became most known through Drag Race. And like the weirdest part for me of Drag Race's slowness to embrace trans performers is the fact that it has engaged with and ushered in 
gender play and gender fuckery on a profound scale Mm -hmm. and it's been breaking norms all along but has like just stopped just shy short of people who identify as trans so i guess my question is like on the whole drag race is its own thing it's not representative of all drag on the whole like don't you find that the larger drag community is a welcoming place for trans people Oh, absolutely. Especially those who have a a connection to drag, the art form of drag, the culture of drag outside of Drag Race, like you said. There are a lot of people whose introduction to drag is, and and their whole experience of drag is still only through the lens of Drag Race. Whether they continue to watch the show or not, some people, there's some people, the only thing they know about drag is what they saw on Drag Race. And so for those people, I think it's probably more difficult for them to understand that there is this more inherent queerness historically to drag, especially years ago when drag was seen more as a more of a theatrical tool professionally, it probably attracted more gender variant people who weren't able to like go to the doctor and transition back in 18, whatever, 16, whatever. I think that there's lots of queerness that's helped catapult drag to where it is today, but it's not as understandable or marketable to the people who make television. I promise we won't spend the whole time talking about Drag Race, but something I've always wondered is that you were on season nine of Drag Race and you came out as trans in the middle of the season to the contestants. Was that something you'd previously disclosed to the producers? No, I didn't sit down and have a conversation about being trans to the producers. I never sat down and said to the producers, I'm transgender. But I've been out as a trans woman. The first time I ever said publicly to the largest audience possible that I'm a transgender woman was on The Daily Show, which has millions of viewers, probably more than Drag Race, on April 16th of 2016 on the Trans Panic episode, where I was featured with several other transgender activists talking about the transgender bathroom ban laws in your state, I think. Yeah, North Carolina. <laughs> and so that's that was what was the hot topic of the day in 2016, as I'm sure you'll probably remember. And I was on national television talking about that. Now, no one knew, no one cared because I wasn't standing next to RuPaul. But it was on my Instagram, it was on my Twitter, it was on my Facebook. I was very happy about that moment. But the people who watch Drag Race, of course, nothing exists if it isn't on an episode. And so to a lot of people, they were like, oh, this person was just born here. (laughs) Oh, Peppermint just realized she was trans while on the show. Yeah, Peppermint just realized she was alive. And the producers later told me, I mean, there is, like, the whole whole format of the show is they, you just have to submit to their process. And they don't really, there's not a lot of back and forth communication, I would imagine, because they wanted to keep things very sort of secretive to surprise you with them. But then on the other hand, if I'd, like, had a well-thought-out plan of all of that and sorted out my feelings because I was nervous. I mean, not like there's a lot of trans people that are, it's not like Drag Race is the the beacon of trans, you know, representation. I was nervous and I wasn't sure how people would react or what would happen, but there's not a lot of talking happening at Drag Race, period. You arrive, they tell you, they they check you in, they welcome you, they tell you like, don't go here, don't do that, and don't push that red button. And then they're like, okay, don't talk until the cameras roll. No talking, no talking, action, go. They want the show to happen on camera. Now, it was so natural of a conversation that it actually did happen before episode whatever that was, four, five, or six on Drag Race. We had had the conversation before on camera, but it was there was other things happening in the room, and it was, I guess, other things. They did ask us 
would you all mind talking about that again? And so we basically did it again. It didn't feel that false, though. We just talked about it again, and we brought up some of the same points. So to answer your question, no, they didn't, they didn't sit down and have an interview about me being trans before I got to the show. I think that makes total sense because, I mean, what I'm wondering was like, did you worry that, you know, being open about being trans would hurt your chances of being on the show? But it sounds like from what you're saying, there was never an opportunity beyond the audition tape to actually have that conversation, yes or no. Yeah, there wasn't. What I said to myself was, I'm going to get on this show. It's a drag show. And whether they're happy about me being trans or not, people sort of already have feelings about it. So let me just focus on the drag. At the end of the day, the thing that's going to get me that crown is going to be my drag. And so let me just bring the best drag that I can. And then the conversations that happened in the workroom, I knew I was going to have a conversation about being a trans woman on that show. It was just a matter of when the conversation was going to happen. And it it did a lot. They edited so much of that stuff out. And it wasn't just me. There were other people coming out as non-binary on the show. There were other people disclosing, you know, their gender variance, whatever it is on the show. It, but it wasn't like a big coming out moment. Like, the, we have a secret to tell. It's not that. Well, I think that is why that moment stuck with me and is so amazing because of what it modeled for people. Like you said, it wasn't like gather around girls of a devastating secret. It was like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm trans. And people were like, oh, okay, that's so interesting. And then like they moved on. You know, three years ago, it was a really a different time. So just to model that coming out where you're disclosing it and it's not that big of a deal, I thought was really powerful. And you know, you do work in activism. Were you cognizant of how it would play out and making it seem so casual? Like, did you put thought into that? Well, I knew that I didn't, the last example that I'd had, the very brave example that I had had of a trans woman coming out on Drag Race was Monica Beverly Hills on her season, season five, before she got eliminated. And that was a very heartfelt, emotional time. She obviously was, she was in tears. It almost felt like a confession in that moment. But for me, I was already, I had already started my medical transition. I've, and so it was really like, yeah, I'm trans. What and what? I mean, I have been in tears. I have been very emotional about all of it. You know, I have been there, but I just happened to have done it at a different time and place. I was in my apartment. I was alone. I was at home at those times. So by the time I got to Drag Race, anyone who really knew me and actually knew me personally already knew there was nothing to cry about, you know, at that point. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's amazing. With the issue of racism in the drag fandom, which we've been talking about, I feel like, for years now, does it seem like people are finally starting to listen? I think so. I certainly hear more people talking about it. And so now I do think that with everything else that's happening, that people are engaging and people are realizing that what happens in the rest of the world happens within the drag race fandom. I think that the perception of Queens like the Vixen would have been much different had they happened now on season 12 or 13. Right. And when we say racism, that is such a broad term. And obviously it's not always visible. But are you able to share what that looks like for you? I'm just curious about what we don't see. Well, I mean, it's a, it's really difficult. It's, it's, I think what we're not understanding or not willing to understand is that racism is not just the actions of an individual. Like, people have an understanding of, of misogyny. People understand what being sexist is. All of sexism isn't just when one man calls a woman a bitch. That's not 
all of sexism. But the bigger topic is what happens when that same woman goes to the workplace or when that same woman calls a police officer how she treated when she's being questioned. And that exact same thing happens with racism. Saying we, we arrested the guy who beat up his wife, we know is not going to make it so that all women in the entire world get paid equally. It doesn't address what happens on a larger scale systemically. And we're talking about in every single industry. Yeah, and I think that is an understanding of racism that we've now just begun to understand collectively at a large scale. Just because you don't use the N-word, it doesn't mean that you're not racist. That is not the only qualification, right? Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot lately about what racism can look like on an individual level in ways that we can see in our lives and in concrete things that are specific to this fandom that we can all agree on just as a starting point in a conversation, for lack of better words. And I was thinking back to something that Kennedy Davenport said on one episode of the show. She said that she goes to these meet and greets with fans and the lines for the white queens are out the door and the lines for her are relatively smaller. And then that reminded me of what Bob the Drag Queen said about all these white queens who are on Instagram and they have over a million followers. And then you look at queens of color and many of them have significantly less. These are all quantifiable things that you can look at. And yes, you can have preferences and prefer one queen over the other, but the patterns do indicate these larger issues. Yeah. Some people are finally understanding and being able to see it. And it's it's a shame that it took this much, but it's going to take a lot more because those are the small examples. Those are the things that are like literally like numbers. It's literal. Those are numbers. And those are hard to argue with. This queen has this. This queen has that. They both did the same thing. It's easy to see the inequity there. But then there are some things that are not as obvious or not as easy to find because they've been hidden, because they've been worked. It's like baked in. I heard an analogy, which it's so right. Like, I think the biggest problems are racism and misogyny in this world. Those are the two things that boil down to misogyny, like homophobia and transphobia is just a different version of misogyny. It's like a cake, a really old cake that we, that was baked a thousand years ago. And they took all, they took this stuff and said, get the sugar. And they put, they want a really, really sweet cake. And they put cups and cups and cups and cups of sugar in. And they bake the cake and they put it down and they taste, they taste it. Ugh, and they turn the container around and realize it was salt. This country is the cake. And we're trying to get the, the salt is the racism. We're trying to get that out of the cake. You can't. It's baked in. I'm not saying that it's hopeless, but it's going to take a really, we're going to have to bake a new cake, essentially. And, and so to make that new cake, to continue the metaphor, it's not only going to be up to Black drag queens, right? We need everyone involved. Are there conversations happening behind the scenes with more than just Black people? I mean, somewhere in the life, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, drag queens. I mean, drag queens. <laughs> yeah, I think there certainly is a much larger, more fervent participation in these conversations that I'm seeing now. And I'm and it's surprising. I mean, I've been around I've been around the block. It wasn't necessarily so. Before, I mean, if someone again, if someone would say the N-word, then everybody in the room would be like, bad, bad, get out. But to acknowledge the the system of racism and our participation and our benefit 
we all participate and 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 benefit from racism in one way or shape or form. I know that that's probably a controversial thing to hear and say, but we all have participated in it to one degree or another. Some way more than others, obviously. And some people don't feel like they participate from it, but they do benefit from it for sure, period. And that's what racism is. Absolutely. Now, I know that we have to get to your new EP that's coming out, but also I have to ask you about All Stars, if that's okay. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, great. So you've said that you were not going to be on the newest season coming out, but that you would, of course, do the show. But what I want to know is how much do you know ahead of time or are you able to ask about who else is going to be a contestant before you commit? Is that a question that you're able to ask producers? Oh, you mean to consider who else is going to be in that I would be going on with if they asked me? Yeah. Oh, no. I, I don't really know. I mean, you know, none. They don't call you and say, okay, we have so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Would you like to do it? I've never heard of that. Once the queens are gone, because a lot of us talk, we all know each other, it doesn't take long before we know who is going or preparing to go. The other drag race queens know when the other, while the other queens are preparing because we, we, they'll call you. They'll be like, hey, girl, can I borrow that thing you wore? We have our ways. <laughs> I was asking that because the rumor on the internet was that for Shade Coulee's all-star season, people thought that she was such a formidable queen that a lot of other queens kind of passed just to be like, I can't beat Shay, but I'll go on all-stars next year. And I was like, how did they know oh. she was going to do all-stars? I, I can't imagine that. I have had conversations about all-stars before with World of Wonder, and I had no idea who was going to be on until, until later. One day you eventually will do All-Stars. Let's just make that assumption. Okay. Let's say you walk in the workroom in the first day. Is there anyone you'd be particularly nervous to see also in there? Hmm. I mean, honestly, I'd be nervous to see any of the queens that were previous winners, which might sound like a given, but it's like that wasn't necessarily a factor a few seasons ago until now. I'd be more nervous if I was like walking into a room of a bunch of queens that were all into fashion. And that's very likely. I'm not necessarily a fashion queen. I don't consider myself anyway. And so that might make me feel nervous. <laughs> do you label your drag in some way? Like you're not a fashion queen. You're no. like a comedy queen. Like what kind of queen do you say you are? Just a peppermint queen. <laughs> I mean, of all of, like, of my favorite drag queens, let's say, you have the most, in terms of like your business model, the peppermint, you're like the most diversified business out there. You have music coming out, you've done Broadway, you've done TV. Like, I think that's really impressive. Thank you. Between you and me, I don't know how many other people even acknowledge that, but... <laughs> but thank you. It is nice to hear. I've tried, I try my best. So speaking of that, you do have an EP coming out this month. The week that this interview airs, your single Best Sex comes out. And I have to tell you, that is the shadiest song I've ever heard in my entire <laughs> life. It is quite shady. I was like, oh, Best Sex, a compliment. But no, ma'am, absolutely not. Can you tell everyone about the song and where it came from? Yeah, it came from my bedroom, apparently. The experiences that I've had and... All of the hits and misses that I've had. I think hookup culture is very prevalent in, I won't just say queer people's, a young queer person who is in a city, hookup culture is, is pretty, you know, is, is, is a thing. 
And so it is with me as well and has been over the years. And with hookup culture comes the dreaded fuckboy. And these people can often disguise themselves as someone else or something else. And they have, you know, a lot of attributes. Many of them, in my personal opinion, are negative. But there's that one attribute that always seems to get them in the door. (laughs) And that attribute is... Their best sex. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but this is not the typical drag queen album. No. I I brought up best sex because I don't think we hear enough from trans people in romantic relationships. People that have sex and enjoy sex. I mean, you know this, the majority of violence towards trans people is intimate partner violence. And so we do need to, you know, destigmatize dating and sex concerning trans people. And so that's why I think that song is so powerful. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's one of the things overall that I wanted to do with this EP, which was supposed to just be a few songs. And then the EP ended up being 10, is going to end up being 10 tracks. Five of them are songs, five interludes. I wanted to be specific in that there's a handful of mainstream queer musicians that we know of, almost none of whom have written about their queerness in a way that was very straightforward for the majority of their career. You know, I don't know all the Melissa Etheridge deep cuts, but I don't remember her ever talking about- I do. (laughs) Okay, then you can tell me, does she literally sing about like, I love you woman, her woman on woman love? The majority of her discography is like singing about I love you or like non-gendered people. Yeah, and that's fine and that's good. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a purpose for that because I do think that while love is universal, dealing with the things that we deal with in everyday life as queer people, there are some, some special considerations. And if anything, it's really important for younger queer people to be able to see themselves reflected back. And I think representation is important in film and television. And I also think it's much needed in music. And so I really wanted to be able to have an album that I would have wanted to hear growing up as a young trans girl. In addition to that, it's also, it's about love. Who doesn't understand that? Everyone can connect to it. And it's so important to be able to destigmatize, like you said, the relationships between trans people and their partners or their friends or their lovers. And I know the best sex is kind of the anomaly in, in, in this EP because the rest are love songs, like A Girl Like Me. Mm-hmm. But I did bring up best sex because tell me if you think this is crazy. In the last five to seven years, we've had the public conversation around trans people has changed and really necessarily through a lot of hard work where we've moved the conversation away from surgeries and body parts. And that was necessary. But I think that inadvertently, it also removed any sort of conversation about trans people in relationships from the public sphere. And so that further solidified this divide between the public desexualizing of trans people and the continued private fetishization of trans people. I agree with that in one regard, because I think I certainly remember, you're right, seeing on these on talk shows of yesteryear, when there, were, there was a trans person, a self-identified transsexual on the show, they would often list off their surgeries, that that would be the topic of conversation. And then the next conversation was like, so who do you, who do you have sex with? Is it men or women? Are, is, are, they, are these men gay? You know, like that. And then that was it. So they, these people were not able to see these relationships for what they were. And that is stigmatizing. When it's just through the context of your genitalia and what do you have, we weren't able to really give it the nuance that it deserved. I think we needed to close off that door and come around the front and talk about the relationship first. Who's this person? Who's this man? Who's this woman? How do you treat this person? Do you treat them like you treat your other partners? Are you afraid to be seen with them in public? Would you introduce them to your family? 
do you get teased or not when you're holding their hand? You know, that's the stuff we need to focus on. And I wonder too, if it's not either or option, right? It's and, it's just like more conversations about everything publicly. You know, I do think it was important in that moment in time, because again, whether you're watching something in the 80s or the 90s or early 2000s, they'd be like, hi, so-and-so. Wow, you look convincing. What have you had done? What's in your pants? It had nothing to do with their humanity, who they were. And I think we needed to establish that these people are and were people that are deserving of respect, highlight how they're being treated in society, which is obviously there's victimization going on. I think we needed to deal with that first before we could talk about their sexuality or the other partners, I think. No, I think you're exactly right. We we did the 101 and now we're on like the 301. And now we're, exactly. we're like, look, listen to Best Sex, stream on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another lyric that stood out to me was from the song Girl Like Me. And the lyric is, a girl like me knows how to live her truth. A girl like me can dream, but sometimes that's all she can do. Yeah, yeah. That's deep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I, from the outside, we just met. I see someone who has dreamed and is like living her dreams. But then this song lyric is saying like, sometimes that's all she can do is dream. Yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily, this song is not, even though I said it's very straightforward, the album, it's not literally just my experience. And so, you know, I have achieved certain things and I've had dreams that I had that I had to abandon when I was younger. Maybe maybe for me, a lot of that came from a place of my sort of connecting with my inner child of the dreams that I wanted to have as a youngster before Drag Race. I went on Drag Race when I was almost 40. And so I'm talking about the years before that, right? But then for other folks, those dreams are still happening today or that they're trying to achieve them today. And so I wanted a song that all of us could, you know, kind of connect with or that would resonate with all of us. And for a lot of those girls, the dreams may be of being a famous model or whatever superstar. And then for some people, their dream is literally being able to just have a job and not be attacked. Walk in life and not be shot or killed or brutalized. And, I, and that's a very low, it's a very low expectation to set. But I think that that is what we're dealing with. We see all these instances of violence and it's not being uplifted, especially the instances of violence against trans women of color and black trans women. If anything, it sends the message that our lives are not valued and not to be valued. And that is a dashing of that dream. I think people want to have value. And so that lyric is speaking to all trans women. It's not just like biography for you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Which is why a girl like me, it's not just me, it's a girl like me. I know that I speak from a place of privilege and I'm grateful. I think that's a great place to end it on. So thank you for talking to us. The EP comes out on the 16th and Best Sex, Best Sex, it comes out on October 2nd for everybody. Jeffrey, you're amazing. Thank you. And that was Peppermint. As you heard, her new single, Best Sex, is out this Friday. We also had Shea Lay on the podcast about a month ago, if you want to check that out. There is a link in the show notes, or you can just search for the podcast in whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. If you enjoyed our conversation today with Peppermint, please help us to spread the word. Post on Facebook, do an Insta story, text your group chats. Doing things like that is really the biggest way you can help our show continue to grow 
and it is so, so, so appreciated. The podcast is on Twitter at LGBTQPod. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1, and we are produced by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. We have transcriptions of all of our interviews on each site, so come check those out at advocate.com and glad.org. All right, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week.